every single day, every single time somebody is pushing your code to production and, and you're releasing a feature or an enhancement, you are making the product better or you're making the product worse, but the products never remain same. And so with every release that your competitor is making and every release that you're making, you're either ma- you know, making chess points, moves against them, positive points, or, or, or you're going negative. And I think like that framework, it actually drives an insane amount of clarity in terms of what you're doing and what the impact is going to be. Welcome to Lenny's podcast, where I interview world-class product leaders and growth experts to learn from their hard-won experiences building and growing today's most successful products. Today, my guest is Varun Parmer. Varun is Chief Product Officer at Miro, and prior to Miro, he was Senior Vice President and Chief Product Officer at Box. As I share with Varun at the start of our chat, I've always been really curious about the product culture at Miro, partly because everyone I've ever met from Miro has been super interesting and super smart, and partly because they've been able to grow as a business and a product in an incredibly competitive market. In our conversation, we get really deep into the product values and principles at Miro, their product development process, how Varun approaches competitive threats, how a bi-monthly company-wide product demo ritual led to saving months of engineering work on a feature, plus insights into how Miro got started, how they grow today, and what their product team has learned about working with a large sales org. Varun is amazing. I learned a lot, and I hope you find it as interesting as I did. With that, I bring you Varun Parmer after a short word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Miro, an online collaborative whiteboard that's designed specifically for teams like yours. I have a quick request. Head on over to my Miro board at miro.com slash Lenny, and let me know which guests you'd want me to have on this year. I've already gotten a bunch of great suggestions, which you'll see when you go there, so just keep it coming. And while you're on the mirror board, I encourage you to play around with the tool. It's a great shared space to capture ideas, get feedback, and collaborate with your colleagues on anything that you're working on. For example, with Miro, you can plan out next quarter's entire product strategy. You can start by brainstorming using sticky notes, library actions, a voting tool, even an estimation app to scope out your team's sprints. Then your whole distributed team can come together around wireframes, try ideas with the pen tool, and then put full mocks right into the Miro board. And with one of Miro's ready-made templates, you can go from discovery and research to product roadmaps, to customer journey flows, to final mocks, all in Miro. Head on over to miro.com slash Lenny to leave your suggestions. That's M-I-R-O dot com slash Lenny. This episode is brought to you by Braintrust, where the world's most innovative companies go to find talent fast so that they can innovate faster. Let's be honest, it's a lot of work to build a company. And if you want to stay ahead of the game, you need to be able to hire the right talent quickly and confidently. Braintrust is the first decentralized talent network where you can find, hire, and manage high-quality contractors in engineering, design, and product for a fraction of the cost of agencies. Braintrust charges a flat rate of only 10%, unlike agency fees of up to 70%, so you can make your budget go four times further. Plus, they're the only network that takes 0% of what the talent makes, so they're able to attract and retain the world's best tech talent. Take it from DoorDash, Airbnb, Plaid, and hundreds of other high-growth startups that have shaved their hiring process from months to weeks at less than a quarter of the cost by hiring through Braintrust Network of 20,000 high-quality, vetted candidates ready to work. Whether you're looking to fill in gaps, upskill your staff, or build a team for that dream project that finally got funded, contact Braintrust and you'll get matched with three candidates in just 48 hours. Visit usebraintrust.com Lenny or find them in my show notes for today's episode. 
That's usebraintrust.com slash Lenny for when you need talent yesterday. Varun, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lenny. So excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you here. I've been looking forward to having a chance to dig into Miro's product culture and the way Miro works for a while. We've actually had a few guests, ex-Miro, Mironeers, is that what you call yourselves? Yes, Mironeers. Okay, yes. Mironeers. Uh, so we had El- Elena Verna on the podcast, who's amazing, yeah. and uh, Barbara, who I think worked in marketing. And everyone I've always met from Miro has been just like really smart and really interesting. And it just feels like you guys have a really interesting product culture that I, I haven't felt like has been shared a lot. And so I have a bunch of stuff I want to dig into there. And one one question I have at the bat, you guys have a really interesting history and specifically the way your company structured, which is that you're co-located in Amsterdam and San Francisco. So first of all, is that is that correct? The company is a global company. So we've got uh, 12 different hubs. Uh, so we have mm. uh, multiple offices in US, uh, uh, you know, four different offices and then uh, multiple hubs uh, in uh, in Europe as well, and and presence in Asia Pac as well. So I think like by now we have a, a global footprint. Uh, yeah, got it. So a question I wanted to ask off the bat is just how has that cross cultural approach to product teams impacted the way that you guys built product and the way the company operates? The one thing uh, that's really interesting, Lenny, around uh, the way Miro is uh, is set up is that. Uh, uh, you know, our product organization is actually uh, based in Europe and uh, and our go to market organization is uh, is worldwide. Uh, and, uh, you know, so our you know product management uh, team, our designers, our engineers are located across uh, three different hubs uh, uh, in, in Europe. And what that sort of leads to is, uh, you know, a couple of like uh, practices that we have as part of our culture. So the first one is uh, practicing uh, empathy to gain insights. Um, and uh, it's not just practicing empathy in terms of customers and figuring out what customer pain points and problems we can solve. Uh, but given our distributed nature in terms of having a global footprint uh, and a lot of our go-to-market teams, you know, folks in sales and, and marketing and customer success uh, are in different continents or geographies, we have to make sure that we actually practice that internally. So when we are interacting with folks, let's say in San Francisco, and those folks are out there meeting some of our large customers and stuff, you know, how do we in the product organization understand their perspective and bring that perspective, you know, into how we design, prioritize, and build products? So I think like that's that's one thing uh, that's unique. I would say the other thing that's less to do with the location, but I think is is sort of the core, you know, cultural value or philosophy that uh, that Andre, who's the founder and CEO, has instilled in all of us is practicing sort of teamwork. You know, how do we actually come together as a team and uh, and bring down sort of the silos that might exist across functions, right? Uh, and I'll talk a little bit around how we are structured in the product organization so that it's a cross-functional perspective that we bring to everything that we're doing because we believe the best work happens when we bring different diverse perspectives to the problem and then, you know, co-create uh, the outcome that the customer is looking for. I want to pull on these threads actually real quick. So you talked about this value of empathy and the importance of having empathy across because you guys are located in different locations and have different cultures and also this idea of of teamwork what's something that you've done that helps you do that either build empathy and maintain empathy across teams or make sure that people work in in teams and not like hey there's this other team over there doing something else one of the most powerful sort of uh things that i've seen work is uh is the questions that you ask, uh, the questions that you ask when, uh, you know, you're going through a product review or 
you're trying to uh, sit down and talk to uh, someone and trying to understand why did they prioritize something over the other and uh, and was it something that uh, was uh, done through interactions they've had uh, with folks internally or externally so i think it's a questions the set of questions to ask in terms of like how did they get to where they are today and was it informed by uh, understanding of uh, the insights that collectively the organization has was it uh, informed by their understanding of where the market is evolving uh, you know where the competition is going was it informed through uh, the series of insights they have either through inbound feedback that's coming through our different channels where customers are giving feedback or you know some outbound interactions that they've had so i think sort of just like trying to double click and getting to the details in terms of what insight led them to recommend certain things or or make a left turn or a right turn is is where i think is the most powerful way to uh, to make sure that uh, you know those things are informed through uh, through practicing empathy internally and externally got it so there's this kind of cultural uh, value of just assuming good intention and asking questions to understand where someone came from i don't know if you'll have something off the top of your head but is there a story or an example of that, that comes to mind where that was done well or not done well i don't know in something you you recently were building maybe there are certain things like for example uh anytime we're trying to build a, a new experience like one of the approach we want to take is like very quickly validate that our original hypothesis uh you know uh, is that sound or not and uh, we are big fans uh, of the design sprint uh, framework you know so uh, what jake nap uh, has done i think is is really amazing in a short 5 day window you can get a small set of people to uh, you know quickly mock up uh, a concept uh, you know convert it into some sort of a prototype and then go out there and get some sort of a validation so oftentimes when we are working on some of these new things we have our our product teams that are focused on zero to one initiatives run this five day initiative and at the end of it we say you know oh this is great like uh, you know who, who did you sort of uh, get insight from so there's a capability that we re- recently released it's called miro talk track which essentially uh, allows you to asynchronously do a uh, you know do asynchronous collaboration by recording audio video on top of uh, a miro board mm. and we had sort of two fundamental choices we could make one we could go down the path of what everyone's doing where you could do like a screen recording and then you know spit out a series of videos like pixels being captured or what we did was we actually went down a different path and the path that we went down was we basically synchronize the movement of a board so let's say you know lenny's presenting a board you know some template he's created in terms of best practices for pms but he wants to have uh, you know some sort of a talk track on top of it an audio, audio video feed and what we're doing is we're actually capturing the movement of the board that lenny's going through along with the video talk track that's on top and the reason why we did that was because we had an insight that came through some of our interviews what what our users want to do is they want to use miro for collaboration uh, while communication is an important aspect of how teams come together where we believe our sweet spot is that we want people to use miro for collaboration and by making sure that they could actually use a video recording and while the video recording is playing they could add in a sticky note they could add in a comment they could actually you know give a reaction we were able to develop this insight by practicing empathy as part of the design sprint framework when we went and started to show our original concept and we evolved and and built on on top of that That is a really cool story and that came out of this sprint framework these 5 day sprint approach. Yes. That's right. That is yep. cool. I got to have that guy on this podcast uh Jake Nap you said right. Yes, yes, yes. I I I can text him right now and I can make the introduction so. Let's so, uh let's yes. pull him right into this podcast live. <laughs> <Exactly>. Tell <laughs> us how the sprint process works. Uh that is awesome. This connects a little bit to another question I wanted to ask around the top is 
you guys are in a really competitive space. And it feels like Miro was very early in online collaborative whiteboarding space. And then I think during COVID, it just became a huge, you know, with the remote work exploding, it's like, holy shit, everyone needs this immediately. And I, over the years, many companies have come into the space that you are all in. And it feels like Miro continues to do extremely well. Like I remember when Figma launched FigJam, there was a lot of just like Miro's dead and Figma's getting into the space, they're juggernaut, game over. Clearly, that's not been the case. And it just feels like, I don't know what it is internally that you all do that continues to allow you to compete and continue to innovate in the space. And I'm curious, just like, is there something to how Miro approaches com- competition and also just, uh, I don't know, the way they approach these sorts of challenges that is unique or interesting that uh, you can share? If you look at the mission uh, for Miro, uh, you know, we uh, empower teams to uh, create the next big thing. And our focus is to uh, enable, you know, teams that are, you know, innovating. And, and, and generally, innovation happens at the intersection of, uh, of a bunch of, you know, cross-functional uh, folks coming together. You know, like we discussed, folks in product management or design or engineering or analytics or product marketing or uh, research. And what we find, uh, Lenny, is that, you know, there are a lot of tools out there and those tools are generally sort of focused on a particular persona. And, you know, maybe they're trying to solve uh, the needs of a designer and a designer has a workflow that they're trying to do and they're using a specific tool and they, they sit at the adjacency of extending that core use case. The fundamental value that Miro provides is that we enable teams. And, and I think like what's unique about our product and, and we can talk about the capabilities and roadmaps and use cases that we are, we are investing in uh, and we already have as part of the product is that we take a team centric lens, right? So we're not saying, Hey, we're building a tool that just works for designers or Hey, we're building a tool that just works for engineers because we fundamentally believe that innovation happens when cross functional teams come together. And when you look at the problem through that lens, you realize that you have to actually architect your solution. You have to think about the use cases and you have to go and prioritize certain experiences that are are, are different and our customers see uh, value in that, right? And I think like that's probably one sort of big macro uh, aspect of how we think about sort of our, our capabilities and, and products and why our customers think of us differently. So that's a, I'd say that's one point. I think the second thing is Miro is actually used uh, you know, obviously, by by teams that are creating these 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 innovative products, and and uh, and we actually have broad applicability across industries and verticals. So while you know some tools might be hyper focused on sort of digital experiences, and 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 Miro's has a great set of offerings there in terms of core capabilities. You know what we find is that Miro is used equally by companies in manufacturing, uh, by companies in healthcare. Uh, you know, by uh, companies, uh, you know, are in architecture and engineering and construction functions, functions by companies, uh, you know, that uh, are in aerospace, uh, you know, uh, you know, governmental agencies and medical in- agencies and so on and so forth. So I think uh, the platform is actually much more agnostic in terms of its capabilities and what we offer that actually makes it more accessible and appealing uh, to organizations that want to go beyond, you know, uh, just like, uh, you know, digital experiences. And then I would say, finally, uh, there are a set of capabilities that are available very, very uniquely to Miro that are valued, you know, by uh, uh, by our users. That again is a big reason people come to Miro. So, for example, if Lenny's trying to conduct, uh, you know, a big workshop uh, for with a bunch of uh, product folks, and he wants to facilitate that workshop and wants to, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, certain folks uh, focus on one part of the board and others focus on the other part, you know, then there are some advanced sort of uh, 
uh, capabilities that enable certain use cases like workshops or you know if you want to use uh, uh, you know miro for some team rituals or from so some agile practices there are sort of core set of capabilities uh, you know that you could use the product for that are missing in some of the other capabilities so i would say a combination of all of those three things uh, you know continue to sort of drive uh, uh, differentiation and i would say on top of that uh, you know we are uh, you know we are a big fan of our community and we believe that community love is 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 what drives uh, uh, you know us you know that's the fuel that sort of keeps uh, keeps us going every single day awesome so just to kind of summarize and as taking notes as you're chatting just thinking about what allows you all to continue to do well in the market considering all the competition constantly coming at you one as you mentioned just there's kind of like a innate multifunctional architecture which is hard for someone to come copy if they weren't built from that without the start so it sounds like you're focusing on a much like a wide spectrum of personas and it's not just tech employees basically also just there's like specific features that end up being really important that maybe people have have a hard time building and then and then this last piece of the community awesome yeah let's dig into the product team a little bit and understand how you all build product and structure product team how many PMs are there at Miro? And then just broadly, how many employees, just to give people a set of a little bit of context? Give or take about 1,800 uh, employees at Miro uh, globally uh, across all of the 12 hubs. And uh, specifically in terms of the number of product managers, we are uh, we're over 450 PMs uh, in the team. And then how are the how's the product team structured? Is it like outcome oriented? Is it product area oriented? Is it user persona oriented? Is it something else? How do you... How do you think about the structure of the product team? Yeah, so I would say it's 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 maybe a hybrid uh, mm-hmm. uh, structure that we have, uh, but uh, the sort of the foundation of the uh, of the team setup is uh, is around persona. So uh, we have what we refer to as uh, streams. You know, some companies refer to as domains, but uh, essentially it's a set of individuals that are focused on solving the problems for a key persona. So just to give you an example, we have a stream uh, that's focused on enterprise, and in enterprise. We are looking at the IT admin persona. We're looking at the security persona or the compliance persona. So, you know, there are a set of folks who are creating a roadmap and innovating in that, uh, you know, for that uh, audience. <laughs> There's another stream which is called platform where we are going after the developer, uh, you know, install base, uh, you know, folks that want to use Miro as a platform and build apps that they can actually make available either on the marketplace for everyone to use, or they could be developers that are inside of a large organization and they're trying to integrate Miro with their specific use cases and workflows and business systems. Uh, so that's another sort of stream that's focused on that. And, and, and there are a couple of other streams like that. And then finally, there are some, some just like horizontal sort of uh, streams, if you will. Like, you know, we have a big focus given that we are a PLG-led company around uh, growth and self-serve business. Uh, we've got a stream that's actually focused on our core internal infrastructure. You know, we've got a stream that's actually focused on data science. That's doing all of the magic uh, that we started to release in terms of Miro AI, et cetera, et cetera. So I would say it's a combination of those. At the heart of it is we are focused on personas and we are sort of uh, aligning people around, uh, you know, solving problems and creating value for that persona. That is really interesting. One of the downsides of a persona-based approach, I imagine, is that products just features keep getting added that solve that user's pain points. What have you learned about keeping the product consistent and having kind of a holistic perspective on the experience how do you how do you address those challenges architecturally like sort of there are like two sort of things that we have done that allow us to uh, 
not sort of pigeonhole ourselves into that specific way of working. And 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 I completely agree with you. Like, uh, you know, it, like you could lead to that. Uh, the first one is actually when we think about the product org, like uh, we call our org, uh, it's called AMPED, A-M-P-E-D. And this is actually going back to our earlier point, Lenny, we had around like what's unique about the product culture, what's unique about Miro and we talked about like teams coming together, you know, reduce, you know, removing barriers or silos cross functionally. So AMP stands for like analytics, marketing, product, engineering, and design. And uh, everything that we do in the product org, when we say the product org, we actually don't mean product managers. We actually don't mean product managers, designers, and engineers. What we mean by product org in Miro is this AMP function. And by having this cross-functional representation where product marketing team is deeply, deeply embedded inside of each of these streams. What we do is that we have, you know, different perspectives that come in where they say, oh, wait a second, you know, did, did you think about the end user experience? And if you're thinking about the end user experience, you know, you have someone in the team that says, wait a second, did you actually think about the enterprise requirements or what's what's needed in the largest corporation? So I think uh, uh, the unique setup of bringing these cross-functional folks allows us to sort of course correct. The second thing is uh, sort of the, the ways of working that we have, uh, you know, we have these uh, product reviews that happen. So you know, we generally classify anything that we are doing, uh, you know, uh, you know, in terms of its complexity around like, you know, you know, small, medium or or high complexity and anything that's that's uh, uh, being, uh, you know, worked on is actually uh, being uh, shared with the entire organization. If it's something that's small to medium, it's actually, uh, you know, shared with the entire, you know, product org. In fact, like if you are non-product, you can actually subscribe to that Slack channel as well. So everybody sees what the product org is working on. Everybody sees like what the core hypothesis is, like what are what is the solution for that? Like what is the uh, proposed design for it? Like what are, how are we thinking about the capabilities? And then anything that's big actually goes through a formal process like a product review where there's a meeting and like a bunch of us are in there. And, uh, and it's up to uh, sort of us, including the product leaders, to basically make sure that we are connecting the dots in terms of having a much more holistic perspective. And I would say lastly, you know, as Miro has sort of scaled like the spectrum of companies, you know, all the way from, you know, a team that might have two or three people and might be taking out their credit card and using Miro for their own team, all the way to a large corporation that might have 50,000, 80,000 employees, all of them are using Miro. Uh, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've come to realize that at some point, like, you know, the deep enterprise requirements need to be encapsulated in a set of, uh, uh, you know, requirements or best practices. And we need to make sure that those get democratized across all of the feature teams. So when I'm thinking about building a new feature, you know, I have a checklist in front of me where I can say, here are the 10 things that I need to think of that I need to incorporate early on in my thinking, in the architecture, in the definition of the process so that it doesn't come downstream. I would say that's an area where we're still working on. And more recently, we put like more focus and energy and there's a product uh, product manager who's now leading that particular charter. I love all these details. Uh, so this AMPED structure, I love that. So there's analytics, you said product marketing, Amazon marketing, and then product engineering design. It's it's rare that you see marketing as a part of teams, as a leadership, kind of part of the leadership group. Do you have a sense of what impact adding that had on the team or where that came from? Like, Or has that just historically been something Miro has prioritized, marketing and product marketing? So it, this was done, uh, you know, before I, I, I got here and I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. <laughs> And, uh, and I think this was, uh, you know, uh, the, the result of an observation, which is quite similar to, uh, what you're saying, which is, you know, while we might be developing a lot of the features and PMs are sort of thinking bottoms up in terms of what, uh, we are building, 
uh, we might find that what we have built might not be able to capture uh, the imagination of what we originally thought it would. And a big part of that is how are you going to think about positioning? How are you going to think about competitive differentiation? How are you going to package it up so that, you know, the sellers that are out there are able to position it in a way that the the customer, uh, you know, in this case, the buyer uh, might be an IT professional, you know, might be, uh, you know, a line of business leader can basically see uh, the, 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 the full vision of where we are going. And I think by having product marketing as part of AMP, uh, you know, we now bring that unique perspective that may be missing in certain teams. PMs are more acting as product owners or more focused on like core sort of problem and solution, but not thinking about positioning because that's so important, especially, uh, you know, when you're thinking about a market that we are increasingly in that, uh, that there is, uh, there is competition there. And that's one of the first things <laughs> we started off with. And that's top of mind for you as well, uh, is that everything that we are doing, you know, has to be looked through that lens. And, and one of the core philosophies that I have, Lenny, is that the success of a company is a direct relation of what the competition allows you to do. Mm. And I feel like not many people sort of talk about that, but uh, but in many cases in my professional career, and I've been at it for you know close to 24, 25 years, is that every single instance when I looked at a company accelerated their growth or, or there was a deceleration of growth, it was a direct relation uh, to what the competition allowed you uh, to do. And obviously, you know, you have to do everything that you, uh, that you should be doing. But competition is that the biggest variable that that uh, allows you to figure that out. I want to hear more about your core product philosophies. That was, but uh, let me dig into the one you just shared. Yes. Uh, so there, what you find is that uh, the way you grow or stop growing is often a direct result of your competition. Is there an example of that that comes to mind? Like I'm guessing maybe Box versus Dropbox is an experience you had there, or if not, what what's an example of that that you've experienced to make it a little more concrete even? Uh, you know, for those of us who've been in the in the collaboration space, and I've been doing collaboration and productivity apps for over twenty years, uh, over two decades. You know, at some point, uh, uh, you know, uh, you have companies like Microsoft that get really attracted <laughs> to uh, to a space, and and you can see the trajectory of a business that's growing uh, at a certain clip, and then all of a sudden, there's there's a there's a competitive mm-hmm. product that enters mm-hmm. that has the might of distribution and the might of uh, of, of pricing. Uh, and that's just like a, a direct example. And I think uh, I've seen that multiple times, uh, first at Adobe, where I was part of the document cloud business, clearly saw that, uh, you know, at Box as well. And uh, and I think like you can, in general, like sort of look at every single category and you can say, you know, there was a cate- there was a category leader and they were growing at a certain clip or a certain pace. And all of a sudden, there were a bunch of entrants that get in and, and what happens to your growth rate. And it's all dependent on how strong is the competitor in terms of, providing a good enough solution. That's one. And the second is how strong is the com- competition in terms of their distribution outreach? And then the third thing is how strong is the competition in terms of the pricing and packaging? I really like this discussion, especially because often the advice is, don't worry about the competition, just focus on the customer, it's going to be fine, which what you're saying is that's not right. And I agree. What do you do with that in mind? How does that impact the way you build product or strategy? Is there some you could share that maybe tactically someone could leverage and to how they're approaching their product strategy it uh, it depends on like who the competition is and yeah. what is their unfair advantage here and you know we talked about one specific uh, competitor and i have a lot of respect for them uh, by the way and i learn a lot uh, from them every single day in terms of how they make bets and how they enter markets and stuff at some point i'm going to write a book on them uh, i feel <laughs> we'll have to come uh, back to talk about that that's right yeah uh, and uh, and I think like it's it 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 sort of comes down to you know uh, 
you know, how do you think about uh, your unique place, uh, you know, mm-hmm. relative to, uh, you know, all of these players and, uh, and in, 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 in your customer's mind, are they able to clearly uh, understand what is the unique value that you deliver relative to everything else? And uh, part of that is, 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 uh, is the unique capabilities you provide. Part of that is how you're packaging those unique capabilities to them. Uh, and and making sure that they in their mind can see how you coexist in this uh, overall sort of tech e- ecosystem that they might be investing in to enable their employees or you know to enable them to uh, to operate and so I think it's it's sort of looking at that from uh, from that lens yeah got it so what I'm hearing is be very clear about your differentiator and continue yeah. to invest there and then make sure your positioning is clear around why you're just identifying here's why we're different and we're not just like a better or worse yes. version of this thing or here's why we're different and making sure that's really clear. Exactly. And I think the the only, the other thing I would say like there's there's another core philosophy I have which is products either get better over a period of time or they get worse. Products never remain the same. And I think you can take that philosophy to a bunch of things in life uh, but I'm going to take the lens of products which is uh, my core philosophy is like every single day Every single time somebody is pushing your code to production and, and you're releasing a feature or an enhancement, you are making the product better or you're making the product worse, but the products never remain same. And, and the lens for this, Lenny, is actually from a customer's perspective, from the end user perspective. And, and the thing is that, you know, if you are a player where there's no one else in the market, that, that's one thing, right? So that, that's great. Like, you know, kudos to you for actually identifying, uh, a blue ocean strategy and and sort of executing to that. But most markets, most products actually have, uh, you know, either direct or, or indirect competitors that are available. So from the customer's mind, you know, you're doing something, the competitor is doing something. So in their mind, they're looking at these products and they're looking at these companies and they're saying, you know, which is better versus not. And so with every release that your competitor is making and every release that you're making, you're either ma- you know making chess points moves against them positive points or 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 you're going negative and i think like that framework if you have in mind uh, you know it actually drives an insane amount of clarity in terms of uh you know what you're doing and what the impact is going to be because every single move that you're making the customer has that sort of in their mind if not explicitly implicitly that they are actually comparing these things and I think it brings a level of focus in terms of where you need to invest and why you need to invest and why this is going to make those decisions. And so I think it, it allows at least for product leaders to make some high quality decisions around the bets that they're making and how they're going to play out in terms of like eventual, uh, you know, once the dust settles, you know, and, and the market at large is going to say, I'm going to standardize on something. And now I feel I need to go get it for everyone or, or, or this is the tool that I want to use for this particular use case that all of these decisions that they were making ladder up to that final sort of play that you have to do in terms of uh, the market consolidation that eventually happens. This is so interesting. Essentially, what you're saying is that you find that being very close to uh, and understanding the competition really well is is really essential versus like this kind of the other end of the spectrum almost from just like, don't worry about the competition, don't pay attention. I like these like this point metaphor of just like, are we moving ahead or further behind? Is there a way you operationalize that to kind of track that? And then also just like, how do you not over-obsess with, let's just catch up, get more features, that kind of thing. Like, how do you find that balance? I'll be honest, like, I, I don't think we've uh, figured uh, it out. We haven't cracked the nut in terms of how hmm. to uh, operationalize this, but uh, I, I know you are based more than me on, on, on some of these things. So, so maybe we can work on this and, <laughs> and, and come up with something. <laughs> All right. That'll be a, 
that'll be something we work on. Yeah. Um, any other product philosophies that uh, you want to share? That was awesome. This is all like sort of related to it. It's like a string of pearls. I think like there's maybe like one more pearl we can actually thread into the needle right here. Let's do it. Which is, uh, uh, you know, we we we, uh, we talked about sort of how do you ladder this up and stuff. And, and then the question is, okay, how do you know, like, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, everything that you're doing is that... Uh, in the right direction or not and like you know should you move slow and be much more mindful about the things that you're doing or or should you move fast and like make certain bets and then decide certain things and stuff uh, and and i think like there are two sort of uh, views that are out there you know my my personal sort of you know perspective on this is that what you want to do is that you want to be the first one to hit the brick wall and uh, you know this is particularly true when you are in a market that is uh, that is uh, competitive um and the reason for that is that, uh, you know, if you consider yourself as an innovation-centric company and 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 you believe that, uh, uh, you know, you are building experiences that fundamentally don't exist uh, anywhere else and you're sort of paving the way for the rest of the folks to basically get inspired with how you uh, are building these experiences, speed uh, is, is the single biggest determinant in terms of, uh, in my experience, in terms of, uh, you know, who ends up being more successful versus not. And I think like this... Uh, that I, I don't know, maybe this is a little bit controversial where, you know, people say like, you know, go slow to actually go fast. And I think uh, I have a lot of respect for that. And there are certain areas you should do that. But when uh, when you are trying to, you know, figure out like sort of new experiences and stuff, you know, and you don't know, you know, if it's going to resonate or not, like, uh, you know, speed is something that you should accelerate for uh, for the organization. You know, I, I think like Frank Slootman, uh, uh, you know, talks about this uh, you know, a lot in his book and, you know, you know, how can you accelerate? And I think the, for me, from a product perspective, like the fundamental concept is like, can you be the first one to hit the brick wall where you have this, where you have the learning faster than anyone else in the market so that you can decide, oh my God, the path that I was going was not the right path. I need to do 10 degrees, uh, you know, west or I need to do 30 degrees uh, uh, east. And I think as long as you're like one or two or three steps ahead of everyone else in terms of uncovering or, you know, discovering those, uh, those insights, then, uh, then I think, you know, you can continue to be ahead of the pack in terms of, uh, you know, building, building your product and business. You're talking about urgency. I've never met a founder or a product leader who doesn't want their team to move faster. They're always encouraging their team. How do we move faster? I'm curious if there's something you've learned tactically about helping your team move more quickly. You mentioned Frank Slootman's book, Amp It Up, is what it's called, by the way, in case yeah. folks yeah. want to check it out. And he's big on just like creating a sense of urgency, constant urgency. And we'll link to that in show notes. But yeah, what have you found helps create urgency and generally helps your teams move faster other than just like move faster, everyone? My fundamental sort of uh, belief here, Lenny, is that uh, every product manager, I can talk to product managers because, uh, uh, you know, uh, there is reason certain ones, someone wants to be a product manager because, like, it, in my view, it's like one of the most thankless jobs. Like, you get to do uh, a agreed. lot of this stuff that you should watch. And it's like, why, 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 why do you have to do this? And yeah. there's like, uh, 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 but like, there, it, it, it attracts a certain personality, and that personality is driven by challenge. And that personality wants to prove mm -hmm. that they, they can solve this challenge and, 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 and do something amazing. So I think. Fundamentally, you know, uh, the product persona actually wants to move fast. I think uh, the reason why in some cases uh, we are not able to move fast is because of uh, uh, roadblocks that we run into. 
And uh, those roadblocks can manifest themselves into technical challenges. They can uh, manifest them in, in cells of uh, organizational challenges. They could be priority challenges and so on and so forth. So my fundamental sort of approach to solving that is to uh, ensure that uh, the product leads who are working on these capabilities uh, can, can instantly raise their hand and and call out that there are challenges that they are running into. And then the job of the leadership team, uh, the, the, the product management team, is to essentially go and quickly resolve those issues, right? And I think like if you are able to resolve those issues, then what it does is it actually starts a virtuous cycle where you can actually start to see those wins. And once you see those wins, you actually create that courage to do more things. And, and maybe... Because you've seen how that specific roadblock was solved and you have a pattern matching that you've developed now, you can solve a lot of those things on your own and it's the next level of challenge that you're now going to raise the, uh, your hand. And what that does is it starts to build this organizational competency in terms of how you can figure out you know, what to build. And you know, we all find these people in our organizations where they, there's someone somehow is able to do certain things in one-tenth the, the time that would take a normal person. It's not that they are like 10 times faster. It's just that, in my observation, that they've figured out which part of the code base they should build in versus not, who should be part of their team and who should not be, how they need to define that from a scope perspective, what does success look like, and it's the architecture of bringing all of these things together that actually brings that magic uh, formula in terms of like, hey, we are able to deliver faster. I really like this topic. What I'm hearing is one of the biggest roots of slowing slowdown in a company and product development is, is blockers not being unblocked. And I always feel the same thing. Like, I feel like a PM's job, like number one job is to unblock their team because like their job is basically make the most out of their team that they're marshalling towards some outcome. And the way you do that is just figure out what's slowing them down. You talked about this like idea of a PM raises their hand to leadership. Hey, we're blocked by this thing. Is there like a process you've come up well, with there that helps you do that? It's like connected yeah. to... I would say like we are, we are trying to sort of systematically like ingrain this in the culture of uh, of the organization so we we have a motto in the in the product org it's very simple a single sentence deliver customer value faster with high quality that's it and everything that we do and when i say everything everything Lenny, like from like uh, you know performance and reward system and measurements everything is based on this one single statement and it has three attributes the first one is deliver customer value and we believe customer value is only delivered when customers use it so anytime as a PM at Miro, when you ship something, we're looking at, well, what was the metric you were going to move and how much did it move? And we have some original targets that we can go back to. So that's the first aspect of what we're doing, deliver customer value. The second one is move faster. And there are certain cycle times that we are measuring across the organization, okay? You know, from the time you came up with the idea to the time that you actually pitched a solution to the time you actually shipped it to the time we actually moved the metric, it's information that has been collected and is being made available to the organization. And you can say, hey, if it was a small, medium, or large, you know, what's the average, what's the median, what's the variance? And you can say, hey, like looking at this data, what can be improved? So that's on the faster aspect of it. And then the last one uh, is around high quality, which is, you know, we want to build best in class, uh, you know, collaboration experiences. So we are always, always getting inspired by what we find, uh, you know, in, in applications and experiences that we uh, see around us. And we are saying, hey, when it comes to, uh, you know, Designing sharing flows, you know, we believe that these are the three, you know, uh, apps that have the best in class sharing flows when it comes to, you know, designing some synchronous capabilities like this, these are the best uh, in class apps that we should look at. So we are always trying to make sure that we are benchmarking ourselves against that. And we have our design team on a regular basis, like when we ship stuff on a monthly basis, our design leadership team 
does a triage of everything that got shipped into like high quality or not high quality. It's just like a binary function. And we're doing that and we're saying, hey, the reason why we believe it's not high quality is because of A, B, C, D, E. And we're making it available to other designers so they can actually start to build sort of that, that telemetry in terms of like some things are more subjective, but you can start to see some pattern matching and say like, hey, you know, this is what this is what great looks like. This episode is brought to you by Linear. Let's be honest, the issue tracker that you're using today isn't very helpful. Why is it that it always seems to be working against you instead of working for you? Why does it feel like such a chore to use? Well, Linear is different. It's incredibly fast, beautifully designed, and it comes with powerful workflows that streamline your entire product development process, from issue tracking all the way to managing product roadmaps. Linear is designed for the way modern software teams work. What users love about Linear are the powerful keyboard shortcuts, efficient GitHub integrations, cycles that actually create progress, and built-in project updates that keep everyone in sync. In short, it just works. Linear is the default tool of choice among startups, and it powers a wide range of large established companies such as Vercel, Retool, and Cash App. See for yourself why product teams describe using Linear as magical. Visit linear.app slash Lenny to try Linear for free with your team and get 25% off when you upgrade. That's linear.app slash Lenny. Okay, so every month or so, the design team looks at everything that's shipped and puts things into a bucket. Either this is, it's like a binary thing, high quality or not high quality. Yes. Wow, that is so cool. And then one, what do they do with that? Do they send it out to the product team? And then two, is this just like FYI? Or is it like, we need to fix all these low quality things going, going back? Or is it more just like for the future, please be aware these are not high quality? Yeah, so it's actually both. Uh, so generally what happens is that uh, the design leadership team is is doing this and there's one particular design leader who's the, the designated uh, person to make sure that this is happening on on a regular basis. And and right now, the way we're using it is that we're actually using it to to calibrate and align around the design leadership around what we mean by high quality. Because it's one of those things, right? It's like, uh, uh, you know, if you've never seen colors and I ask you, Lenny, describe pink and, and, and compare that to red. And like, if you haven't seen like colors, like how do you describe colors? You can't. But like, if I show you and I say, Lenny, these are three examples of what pink is, and these are three examples of red is, then you're like, oh, I get pink and I get red. So there are certain things that you just, like when you write it, it's very, very hard to describe it. But if you show specific examples, it's very clear. Oh, I get it. I, I get why how pink is different than red. But if I try to describe it, it's going to be very hard. So we got into these endless conversations at some point about a year ago where we were saying, we need high quality, we need high quality. And people were like, let's just go and define this thing. And we had like a bunch of our leaders go and, like write like you know documents like really long documents in terms of like what are the attributes and how how do we define those attributes and how do we measure those attributes and how do we enable people to do that and it felt like it's a, it's a good thing because we are trying to codify it but it also felt like you know it was a very heavy way of solving that problem and then you know we just came up with this approach which is like what's great versus not great and just start classifying it and as you know it's like modern AI systems are like classification systems and we got yeah, I was just gonna say it sounds like Reinforcement learning approach exactly. to uh, defining quality. That's right. That's right. And uh, and I think it's worked uh, uh, worked decently well. I would say, like with most things, like uh, you know, we need to operationalize it, and we need to make sure that now we are democratizing it, and everybody has access to it, and so on and so forth. But I think it's 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 been uh, it's been a good start, and now you know we are we are sharing this more openly with the, with others in the in the org. 
when I said that, I imagine you, uh, from the outside, you have a very unique culture and approach to product. That's a great example of that. I've never heard of a process like this. So what I'm hearing is essentially you're trying to build the muscle within the organization of what is quality. It's like this continued heuristic of like, okay, I get it. And so PMs on the team start to like understand in their head what that means. Right. Super cool. You also talked about the middle part of that sentence of moving faster and then you track and measure that somehow. Can you talk more about that? Because that's something every product team is always trying to understand. Like, how do we know if we're going faster, if we're going as fast as we could? How do you actually do that? How do you measure these things? The core philosophy there is like, uh, you know, velocity is more like the game of golf uh, uh, where you're just playing against yourself. Like, it's it's not like if Lenny and Varun are out of the golf course, like, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, I'm not competing against you. I'm just competing against myself because that's the only, <laughs> I'm going to just hit the ball. So, it's like how better, uh, how much better can we get? So I think our core philosophy is around that. And what we're trying to do is that, you know, on uh, on all the product teams, the feature teams that we have, we're just collecting all the information and we are making it available uh, to everyone so that they can actually see what the cycle times are. And what we are interested in is from the time that you have an insight, from the time you believe I can do something unique for my user, for my persona, uh, you know, how long does it take for you to actually deliver that value and you know we have uh, you know have, we have a product uh, process that we we follow which starts with with the p strat which is a strategy and then we go into p0 which is uh, you know definition of the problem then we go into p1 which is definition of the solution and then we go into p2 which is once the solution is shipped you know are we hitting the metrics that we originally had uh, uh, defined upfront before we we decided to work on this and, uh, you know, you have all of these stage gates and then we, we basically classify everything that we're doing in small, medium, large, you know, uh, and, and you can go in and you can say, Hey, I thought this was a small thing. And, you know, small thing is like something you can get it done in less than a month and so on and so forth. And, you know, there are like 50 other product teams that are sh shipping these features. And what's the average? What's the variance? You know, uh, what's the median? And, oh, wait a second. Actually, it seems like I took way more time in the problem definition stage. Let me actually try to go talk to this other uh, product team that actually did it much faster or, oh, you know, I actually did it really, really fast. And the reason why I did it fast was because of this. Let me go share this out with the, with the broader team. And, uh, and usually like the product ops uh, function, uh, we, we call it product excellence internally. Like sort of product excellence function, uh, is, uh, is recording some of these things. Uh, I, I would say, uh, you know, getting reliable data. And then because we have some things that are going through meetings and there are some things that are going through Slack, like, you know, we could, uh, we could do better on, on some of those. Uh, dimensions, but uh, all of this data is available and uh, we, uh, we provide it uh, openly and uh, folks can benchmark themselves against that. So cool. Okay. So you have this P-strat, you called it, <clears throat> document, which is kind of like an initial concept. And then it's interesting you use the P0, P1, which is often for bugs, but it's cool that you use it for defining your products. So P-strat is just like a, an idea pitch. P0 is a spec, basically like a one pager for the product. And then P1 and P2 are basically getting to like, here's the actual product we're building. And you basically track time per step and map it to here's how large this project should be. And over time you track per person, it sounds like just like, are you matching the benchmarks of like how long a small project should take across each step? Yeah, exactly. Wow. That is extremely cool. Uh, whatever templates you can share these things that we can include in the show notes would be awesome. Yes. Because people are always looking for just like, oh, I want to do some of this stuff. And if right. they just plug and play, the, the more the merrier. Yes. Shifting a little bit, it sounds like you guys are doing Scrum in some form. Can you just yeah. talk about 
just broadly the product development process? Like how long do you, are your sprints? How long do you plan for in the future in detail, specifically just like high level? How does the product development process work? So there, there are certain things that, uh, you know, I learned at Box and, uh, you know, that inspired uh, some things that we, uh, we do uh, at, at, at Miro. And there are certain things that we've, uh, we've evolved. So like one of the things that uh, we've instituted is sort of, you know, our, our roadmap pr- process, right? So that's sort of the, the first thing around uh, how uh, the different teams uh, are, are looking at, you know, the, uh, the things that they're going to work on. So we have a rolling six-month roadmap. Uh, hmm. uh, it seems large, but uh, we've got, like I mentioned, uh, a number of enterprise customers. And the, if, if I've learned one thing that large enterprises like is, uh, is asking for a roadmap review. So <laughs> that tends to be... Uh, my favorite meeting of uh, sitting down with the enterprise leaders uh, and walking through what we are working on. So what we've done is we've tried to architect something which actually allows our customers to get what they're looking for, but at the same time does not remove the agility that is so important for us to to deliver value faster. And so what we do is we have a rolling six-month roadmap that gets updated every three months. And the first three months of that, that roadmap, we have an 80% precision level, which means that 80% of the things that we claim to be on the roadmap will get done. That's that's the target. And for the for the next three months, because it's six months, so the first three months is 80%, the next three months is 50%. So we have a much lower level of resolution in, in the next you know three months after that. And what that allows the product teams to do is actually have flexibility, which is based on what the customers are asking for and based on what the competitive moves are, based on some technology breakthroughs that happen around large language models, they can pivot and they can pivot and move towards that. And they won't get penalized either by the customer or internally in terms of doing that. So that's that's what we do. And that's all at, uh, on the backdrop of an annual strategy that we uh, publish. So every year, uh, you know, we uh, publish a, a strategy white paper that it gets published internally, uh, available to every single millionaire, you know, across all functions that clearly articulates, you know, the key bets that we want to make. Why do we want to make those bets? What is the expected outcome? And how, how does that ladder up into the overall business outcomes that we're trying to drive from an OKR perspective, as well as the overall business strategy that we have? So people take that, that product strategy, you know, white paper or artifact, and then against that, they're building their roadmaps, which get updated every three months. And then uh, inside uh, of uh, uh, of the teams, we uh, you know enable teams to be quite autonomous in terms of uh, uh, some of the rituals that they're doing. We want them uh, you know to uh, obviously embrace best practices. We've got a team of agile coaches uh, that uh, you know share best practices or you know are available you know to to help if there are certain specific uh, uh, you know uh, needs uh, that that teams have. And then I, I think like on top of that, there are certain key, like I would say, rituals that we do that maybe are unique. Um, uh, so for example, we have something called as Miro Connect, you know, which happens every other Friday. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, every other Friday, you, uh, you know, for example, in our Amsterdam office, you can go in there and at four o'clock uh, in the afternoon, you know, four to seven or eight, and sometimes it goes uh, really late. You've got a bunch of product teams, uh, you know, sitting around tables and it feels like, oh, it's like a trade show or something. And you just people are coming in. They're having a good time. You've got a drink in your hand. There's maybe some light music playing in the background and you're going from table to table and you have teams that are actually showing all the amazing work that they're doing. And it, it, you know, if done right, like it happens once in a while, but like if done right, it's magical in terms of the outcomes that you can get. So I, I, I'll tell you, there was a team that actually was presenting at our Berlin uh, hub. And uh, they they were saying we're working on this feature, we, uh, you know. And there's an you know there's an engineer uh, uh, you know who walks over to that desk, 
and says, what are you working on? And the, and the team describes it. Oh, we were trying to do, uh, you know, something like this. And uh, and this engineer had actually worked on that particular problem in their in their prior life. Like literally they had implemented this. So he says, so so how are you going to implement this? And the team, the engineer that's sitting there says, like, this is the approach uh, I'm going to take and it's going to take me three months. And he's like, oh, would you mind if I go and help you with this? And they're like, sure, more the merrier, go ahead. So this person, you know, uh, you know, puts down their beer and says, okay, I'm having a good time. Let me just head back to, uh, uh, to my home. And in the next three or four hours, goes and quotes the entire thing, makes a pull request. And next day in the morning, one of the engineers from this core team that was exhibiting at, at Miro Connect, you know, looks at the pull request, you know, reviews the code and says, yes, something that would have taken, you know, three months for this core team because they didn't have the expertise, literally got, got done in, in, in three hours because there was another engineer that ran into them and said, I, I know how this is done. I can actually help you here and, and went ahead uh, and, and did the right thing. And so we're trying to create these magic moments. It happens once, uh, once in a while, but we have one success story. <laughs> and uh, I like to tell that in every opportunity that I get. But that's another sort of, sort of unique thing that we've done in terms of uh, uh, bookending things uh, around how, how we operate here. That story is like a, a dream for any PM. <laughs> Just imagine Indeed. saving <laughs> months of work with one conversation. I imagine people were like, how do we replicate this on often? I love that. With the uh, these meetings, just understand if their team is in Berlin, let's say, there's a screen there, like in front of a table, and they're like talking through a screen, like a video conference. Yeah, I mean, we, like right now, what we've figured out is that uh, it is really hard to do these events, uh, you know, over, uh, you know, uh, audio video conferencing and stuff. So generally what happens is that you have an audio video bridge that's playing, but mostly it's people walking up to the, the respective teams and then having like a live conversation. Like that's, uh, that's usually how uh, these things are operated. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So you have six month rolling roadmaps. You have a yearly vision strategy for the company, two week sprints. Is there also a quarterly OKR sort of process or is it yeah. those or not? There is. Okay. Can you there just is, talk yeah. a little bit about how that works? Yes, yes, yes. At Miro, we, uh, we practice OKRs and, uh, you know, it starts off at the company level. Uh, and then, uh, you know, those company level OKRs are taken by the AMP organization, like we describe it's the AMP organization. And then we break it up. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would say like we have refined it uh, over the period of time, the two years that I've been uh, at, at Miro. And, and uh, uh, early on, we were doing uh, OKRs uh, uh, on a uh, on a quarterly basis, and I would say more recently, we've actually evolved to six-month KRs. Uh, and what we found was that, uh, you know, six months was the right cadence in terms of giving enough time for teams to basically push forward uh, in in executing these KRs and minimizing uh, the quote-unquote uh, overhead of uh, of, uh, uh, of of doing replan uh, every single quarter. Um, and, uh, and we found that it was much more effective and efficient for the entire organization to do it on a, on a six month uh, basis. However, we are doing traction on a monthly basis. So every four weeks as AMPT, uh, you know, we are looking at our KRs for the AMPT organization on a monthly basis doing traction. However, the planning, uh, the targets, uh, are, are, are done on a, uh, on a six month basis. I love how OKRs could just be anything like could be every six months. Could have objectives, could have key results. Like it's just such a term that it just applies to anything that people do with goals, basically. That's true. And it works. It's great. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> um, and again, if there's any templates that your team could share of the way you do that stuff, that would be amazing. I'm going to include that in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because I think like, as you would expect, like 
we run Miro on Miro, uh, so uh, so there's like a lot of uh, uh, things that we could uh, share uh, as templates in terms of how we are running things on on Miro, uh, not just as OKRs, but in terms of product reviews, and you know we have a, a ways of how we are doing asynchronous reviews combined with synchronous reviews, and there's this blended experiences that we have, and so we can we can definitely uh, share uh, out with the community how we how we do some of these things. Awesome, and that's a great segue to another question I was going to ask is just what other tools, what's in the stack of the product teams. Uh, workflow. So Miro, obviously, maybe talk about like what you use Miro for, but then what else is in there? Like what do you use for task management, bug tracking, things like that, design? Sort of starting uh, from the bottom up, like infrastructure up view. Like so we, uh, all of our uh, tickets are, are are handled in, uh, in, in Jira and, uh, you know, we're using some of the Jira, newer capabilities in Jira in terms of uh, coming up with roadmaps and, you know, coming up with the priorities and stuff. Uh, uh, on top of that, the uh, all of the specs uh, you know, uh, generally get recorded uh, uh, in Confluence. Having said that, we're actually a big fan uh, of you know tools like you know uh, Google Docs as well as Coda. Uh, you know that uh, allows us to track uh, our KRs in a in a pretty uh, effective way. You know, on on top of that, obviously, like we we use Miro a lot. Uh, I would say uh, for a lot of our things, uh, especially on the on the product and uh, and design side uh, uh, of the team. You know, generally, uh, all of our uh, uh, insights get captured inside of Miro board. So when we are going and, uh, you know, conducting uh, user uh, experience re- interviews and stuff, we will record those. And then those recordings get uh, added to a, a, a Miro board. So Miro mm-hmm. acts as the content hub uh, or a team hub uh, uh, for a particular project. You know, once you capture all of those insights, then generally, uh, you know, all of the brainstorming uh, and uh, and team ideation happens on the Miro board as well. So Miro is actually also used as a tool to facilitate uh, meetings and workshops. Once all of that, uh, you know, uh, is, is, is synthesized into a set of recommendations and outcomes, you know, so when we go into these product reviews that we were talking about, Lenny, uh, the same Miro board then gets manifested into uh, a set of presentations. So we use Miro uh, for presentations. We've actually mm-hmm. made some really amazing updates in terms of our capabilities there. And if folks haven't checked them out, I would strongly encourage them. So there's a capability called Showtime that basically abstracts out the UI and lets people focus on the content, but do it in a way that it's interactive. So everyone that's on the call can 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 have reactions, uh, you know, can share their comments and uh, leave comments while the presentation is happening without actually disrupting any of the flow for the user. So we use that a lot for presentations as well. And I would say more recently, what we've started to do is that we've started to move some of our synchronous meetings into async reviews. So I talked about this talk track feature that we have. And a lot of teams, what they would do is that they would actually send you, uh, you know, five minute, 10 minute talk track in advance. And it's just a link to a Miro board. You click on it and then you just sit back and relax, you know, and then you have this magical experience where you're sitting back and the Miro board is automatically moving because Lenny was like recording it like that. And then you have the video play and then you can pause it anytime. You can add in your comments and stuff so that the next time when you meet, instead of actually providing context to everyone, those, those, those synchronous sessions are a lot, lot more deliberate and focused on driving outcomes or achieving, you know, consensus. So people are just focusing on the comments that were added as part of the async product review so that when they meet uh, synchronously, they can use that. So Miro boards are used for that as well. And I would say now a lot of our dashboarding uh, shows up in Miro boards now. We recently released uh, data visualization capabilities around most popular BI tools. So at Miro, we use Google uh, Looker a lot. So a lot of our dashboards are, 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 are in Looker. And what you would typically find is that our analyst team and product teams will just grab a link to a Looker dashboard, put it on a Miro board, and it unfolds into a full visualization. 
And unlike a screen grab, you never have to go update it because right there on the Miro board, it's always updated and you can refresh that. So you basically have this, 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 uh, this experience where Miro acts as that single source of truth for a lot of the teams in di- across the entire journey of product development, where a single Miro board is, 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 is uh, meeting the needs of like multiple uh, sort of use cases there. And then for the roadmapping, is it in Miro, like the, each team's roadmap, or do you use something like Jira? Yeah, so I think like we've got a couple of tools uh, for for road mapping, and our observation is that while those tools are great for 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 the unique needs that they're solving, we haven't found like a like a universal solution for road mapping. So there are some teams that use Miro, you know, for road mapping, and they would use the Kanban sort of uh, widget in 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 Miro for that. You know, what are they working on? What's coming next? What's in the backlog? But I would say like it it is a problem that is not completely solved in terms of how do we actually bring uh, you know these these artifacts together at scale. What we are starting to see, and this is actually a unique use case of Miro, is that we actually enable our entire field organization using talk tracks. So what happens is that we have our entire roadmap published out as a Miro board for enablement purposes so that that's an artifact that is approved to be shown to a customer. Um, and uh, what you will see is that you'll see five or six recordings in there. And uh, you know the leader for enterprise has done a five-minute recording on everything they're working on. The leader for uh, platform has done that. The leader for end-user experience has done that. Uh, you know the the person who's driving some of our AI experience has done that. And so you can go in and you can just click on that video and you can self-serve sort of meet your needs uh, by by using Miro and and this capability that we have. That's awesome. And it sounds like each team can basically choose the tools they want to use. There's not like standardized. Everyone needs to use Jira exactly. or Miro for their roadmap. I like exactly. that. I like how teams do that often. Maybe one last question around the product org, and then I want to shift a little bit to growth and how Miro grows and things you have learned about growing. So question I always try to get to is, how do you think about balancing new bets and innovation with maintenance and just general like incremental work? Do you have some sort of philosophy as a product leader broadly, and then maybe at Miro specifically of just like, the, how to balance investments in these two buckets or maybe three buckets, you know, bugs, incremental work, and then just big bets. How do you think about that? So, uh, you know, we have some uh, uh, some rule of thumbs in terms of like how we want to uh, allocate, uh, you know, our, our investments across these buckets. And I would say a lot of it, Lenny, actually depends on sort of the state of the team. Like there are, there are certain, certain teams that uh, have more tech debt than others. There are certain teams that are actually working on some really big zero to one features than other teams. And so I think like there is a variance, you know, the standard deviation actually is dependent on like which part of the spectrum that you're in, which is, are you a team that we believe needs to create the next generation experience on the platform? And hence we have to prioritize innovative work or are you the team that's actually so critical to actually, you know, meeting our objective around like better board performance or any of the other things that we believe are, are important. And hence we need to invest in those, uh, in those critical areas. But I would say in general, you know, uh, uh, innovation versus not, uh, you know, uh, you know, varies on a spectrum of anywhere from 60 to 80%. Uh, so I would say about 20 to 40% of the available uh, capacity at any given time is either getting allocated uh, to uh, to architectural initiatives. You know, there's a technology roadmap that our CTO is, is driving that we believe is extremely important as the platform scales. And, you know, now, as you know, we have over 50 million people on the platform. So we continuously have to invest in making sure that the platform can scale. And there are certain teams, you know, that probably have 40 to 50% of their allocation towards that because they're a critical part of the component. And there are other teams that are maybe more end user focused and are more UI focused where that allocation is lower. But I think general rule of thumb is 
20% is always a given, but it can go as high as 40 to 50%. On uh, bigger bets and longer term thinking. Yeah, 20 to, uh, 20 to 40% uh, goes on the technology-related initiatives. Oh, got it. Like uh, infrastructure maintenance, making sure everything's there. Run got the it. And, exactly, yeah. And then what about just uh, big long-term bets that you're not expecting to pay off anytime soon? Do you have a heuristic of just what percentage of, say, total resources you put there? You've probably uh, yeah, seen this, uh, you know, the framework of like three horizon, like it's uh, it's, it's quite yeah. popular in like McKinsey yeah. and like Amazon. Harvard Business School and so on and so forth. It's like horizon one business, which is what we are, what, you know, the, the thing that's delivering uh, food on the table. Uh, generally, there's about a 70% allocation of resources that we have to overtake. Then there is horizon two, which is an adjacent thing, uh, you know, over the next 12 to 36 months, we believe uh, it's material. Usually that tends to be around 20% of the allocation. And then there's Horizon 3, which is like three years out, you know, three to five years, you know, next generation things. And that's about 10% of the ratio. So it's like 70, 20, 10 across Horizon 1, 2, and 3. Awesome. Any other uh, thoughts along the lines of just how you think about product before we shift? And I only have a few questions around the growth kind of story of Miro and what you've learned about growing. In terms of like product leadership and like uh, uh, what you know, what we believe is 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 the way we want we want product leaders to be developed, and I think it's like more of a people philosophy. And so, you know, we have our product leadership, which is which constitutes of all of the folks who are running all of these uh, streams. And I always tell them that you have two personas that uh, uh, you have to think about. Everyone who's on the product leadership team is is a product leadership team member, and the fundamental thing that you have to do is drive accountability. So the number one thing that a product leader on the product leadership team needs to do is drive accountability with others in the product leadership team. The other persona that they have is that they are a stream leader. They're actually responsible for delivering value for the respective persona and respective customers and stuff. So when you put on the persona hat of a stream leader, which is different than the persona of a product leader, your number one metric, the number one goal that you have is, is drive improvement. So when you go back and you work with your team, Always have the lens, are you improving things? And whatever you want to improve, but you always have to ask yourself, today compared to yesterday, tomorrow compared to today, have I improved things? And that's the yardstick you should think about. When you go sit in the product leadership team every Monday morning, every Monday afternoon at one in the afternoon when we meet together, your number one goal is actually to drive accountability around this. And are you making sure that we as, as leaders in the organization are doing the right thing for the, uh, for the company? And, and, and I think like that's like a philosophical construct that I always remind people in terms of uh, what they should be doing. So as an example, uh, tomorrow we have calibrations. We have our annual sort of review cycle happening in the company. Good times. And, always a yes, blast. Yes, always fun and so critical, uh, you know, as a leader because it sets the tone uh, for everything that you're going to do. And, you know, in my opening remarks, the only thing I'm going to remind everyone in the room is that your number one goal here is to be a product leader and, 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 and accountability is what you have to write. That's it. Just hold each other as accountable, including myself, in terms of making sure that as we go in, like that's the key thing. And I think like once people sort of understand sort of like uh, the duality of how they need to operate across those two specific goals, it actually leads to uh, to really high performing teams and teams that actually are able to create uh, somewhat of a magic, you know, if they are open and there is trust uh, that 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 has been built in the team. And when you say accountability, what does that look like? Is it pointing out, hey, you didn't achieve this thing we were trying to achieve, or you didn't do a great job leading this meeting? Is it just like direct feedback often? Or is there some other way you see that manifested? And what do you like to see? 
Yeah, I think it's it's basically uh, practicing uh, uh, feedback in a very open and constructive way and uh, focusing on what is important for the business and not shying away from having uh, some of those uh, those observations and conversations, you know, not shying away from that. Uh, but it's all in the lens of like, what is the right thing to do for the business? Uh, and and if you feel that uh, that uh, one or more members of the leadership team are not living up to what needs to be done, then just voicing it. And it's not like you're complaining or anything. It's just like, I have this perspective. Is this the right perspective or not? Because actually it ties very well with the overall cultural values that we have. If you do things with the lens that you are being uh, empathetic, then you pose it as a question as opposed to a statement. And I think that's one of the things that we practice a lot at Miro is that I believe that I am seeing there are certain things that are happening that it could be just me that I'm not seeing the other things. But, but, but what is it? Can you help me understand? Can you help me figure out that why why certain things are happening? Because I might just be missing the perspective. But because you bring it up and and that's part of practicing accountability in an empathetic way, it actually gets the entire team in the right man, mindset, you know, in terms of how they operate. Has anyone uh, given you some sort of direct feedback recently or pointed out something you didn't do well that held you accountable that you can share? Uh, all, all the time. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> I, 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 uh, when we do our offsites, this is actually a fun thing, is that uh, every offsite that I do with the, my leadership team, usually there's a one to two hour session where it is feedback to Varon. And I actually do it openly. I will have about eight to 10 people in the room and I will uh, force people to be very honest. And uh, I want to show my vulnerabilities to everyone that I am not perfect and I have lots of areas to improve. And every time people do it, like it's, it's interesting like that uh, they open up uh, in, in, in very amazing ways. And I think I, I, I love it because it helps me become better. It helps me identify my blind spots. But what it does is because I do it in an open way, it builds uh, a lot of trust. It brings trust that, uh, you know, I do it openly and I'm, uh, I'm an open book and, and they can share whatever they want, not just with me, but openly in front of everyone. Are you uh, willing to share one thing they suggested that they pointed out that they wish you did differently or better? Yeah, I think like in general, like uh, finding uh, time uh, with me uh, tends to be uh, a bit of a hard thing. And and, you know, generally there's always like this feedback, which is like need more time, you know, maybe more responsiveness over email or Slack or something like that. And that's uh, that's an area that uh, I'm constantly uh, working on and, and improving. So, yeah, <laughs> that feels like a cop out like that doesn't feel too painful to hear. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, don't, have a, I don't have a lot of time. I'm sorry, but I get it. I get how and that comes back to your point about blockers and how important it is to unblock teams because that leads to. A lot faster progress. That's true. That's true. Okay. So let me shift a little bit to Miro's growth. And I only have a few questions here. I know it's getting late in your site, so I don't want to keep you too long. Sure. The first is something I'm I'm on this constant quest to understand how companies got their first users. And I haven't actually heard the story of how Miro got its first thousand users or customers. I know you weren't there in the early days, but do you happen to know how Miro initially grew and got their first thousand users and customers? You know, I think like the, the the fundamental thing there is that we always had like user first approach, and uh, and reaching out to certain uh, communities that were relevant to what was being it was like a key part of uh, lighting the fire, if you will, the proverbial way, people to start to talk about the the product, and uh, and given the collaborative nature of the product, uh, you know, some of the early adopters invited people who were also early adopters, and sort of the the flywheel started to uh, to work. Uh, you know, I've heard that. 
we did uh, a fair amount of content marketing and like, you know, listing the product on uh, on sites like Captera sort of helped. There was, uh, you know, some early investments in terms of uh, 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 SEO uh, and uh, and organic growth. Uh, so, you know, there was a focus there, uh, which which was the, the main source of driving, you know, traffic. The top of the funnel came through that. The, the product teams were uh, very intensely focused on sort of building viral loops uh, as a key mechanism of driving growth once the, the, the traffic came in. And every interaction that actually introduced barrier, you know, they looked at it and they looked at the data and they said, let's reduce this barrier, let's remove this thing so that, uh, you know, the product could be effectively embraced. And it was an evolution uh, over a period of time. Uh, you know, there was also the fact that uh, early on, in the journey, uh, you know, some of the features were presented on a trial basis, uh, uh, you know, and then later on, like sort of the model was evolved from uh, from a from a trial basis, uh, time limited to a premium model that further sort of accelerated, you know, the growth uh, for the business. So I would say like those were some of the approaches and uh, that were taken to get to, uh, you know, the first thousand users or so. So you talked about how Miro grows where it has this magical loop of I use Miro to, for myself. Then I share it with my team and in whatever way I'm using it, they're like, oh, Miro, this is cool. And then they start using it and then they share it with people that they want to work with and create this loop of growth. And I imagine that's how Miro mostly grew initially and continues to grow. Is there anything surprising or unintuitive about how Miro grows that is beyond that? I imagine sales is a part of it and we could talk about that. But is there anything else that is interesting that is worth mentioning? No, I think like that's that's. The, the key of uh, of the growth, I think there are like specific use cases where uh, they are uniquely sort of geared towards inviting a lot of net new uh, people. So, for example, Miro is loved uh, as, a, as a workshopping tool. And so generally one person is using Miro, but they invite 10, 15, 20, 50, 100, 200, 300 people to that workshop. So there are specific use cases where people get introduced to the product and then go and sign up for it and then start to use it for for that use case or other use cases. I think the other sort of accelerant uh, in in all of this is um, is the is the templates that we have in particular, you know, the role that uh, Miroverse uh, plays uh, in all of this. And uh, you know, just just to give you uh, uh, an example uh, here, like there was a template, uh, you know, which was created around the FIFA World Cup, right? So there was a FIFA World Cup diagram. Uh, Cornell X, uh, you know, he's the founder and managing director of a Canadian strategic service design consultancy firm. He created this Miroverse template. And, uh, you know, it, uh, you know, it had over 100,000 views and about 15,000 copies were made of this single template. And, you know, uh, you know, given sort of the popularity of all of this, like it actually got, you know, indexed by, uh, by Google. So when you went into search, you actually saw the, the, the Miroverse FIFA template show up when you were trying to search for, uh, your, you know, uh, FIFA World Cup. And that was another sort of acquisition channel top of funnel that actually drew uh, uh, a lot of uh, users to it. So I think uh, I would say, uh, you know, the, the Miroverse is, uh, is also like a key accelerant to uh, this. If you had to think about the pie chart of how Miro grows, what percentage roughly would you say is word of mouth, organic versus what you just described, which is essentially SEO versus sales, outbound sales? How do you think about that? Is there a way to kind of model that simply? Without getting into specific uh, numbers and, and and stuff, like I would say, like fundamentally, uh, Miro is a product-led uh, growth uh, company, and product channels are uh, one of the highest uh, contributors uh, for uh, growth uh, of of users. 
you know, as the business has evolved, you know, to uh, to uh, serve the needs of uh, some of the largest corporations uh, in in the world, you know, the enterprise segment and uh, the enterprise persona when they are trying to provision uh, Miro for, uh, you know, tens of thousands of users who then go con- convert, uh, you know, conduct hundreds of thousands of workshops on Miro that invite like you know millions of users uh, on the platform is a key part of uh, of the flywheel uh, that we are seeing. So I would say product. Uh, channels are probably uh, you know very strong uh, and increasingly enterprise is a key part of uh, of that acceleration. A great segue to our final question, which is the idea that you start a product like growth sounds like clearly it's a big part of growth today. But as every product like growth company does eventually, you have a large sales team, I imagine. What have you learned as a product leader working with sales, especially at a product like growth company, about how to make that relationship work and have a product work work effectively with a sales org? There are sort of a few learnings, and I would say maybe this is one area where uh, you know we are we are working on like how how we could be doing better in terms of uh, bringing our ourselves uh, closer, uh, you know, uh, to our high touch and bringing high touch closer to uh, to self serve in terms of uh, how we operate uh, overall. You know, it's it's a lot of hard work. I would say first of all, basically <laughs> to bring uh, yep. both of these organizations uh, together, and you have to be very deliberate around the points of inter- in- intersection and you have to make sure that uh, you know these organizations don't consider themselves as 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 competition like you know it's 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 one product uh, one company it's just two two channels of how we are are serving uh, our our customers you know there are some things that we've done which is uh, you know have the product marketing team uh, you know that basically works uh, across both of these functions and and make sure that uh, uh, you know they are are, are bridging. Uh, you know what we are hearing from the sales organization in terms of what directly customers need uh, on the enterprise side, uh, and then what do we need? Uh, you know on the on the self serve side. Uh, you know there's a full sort of process in terms of how the handoff happens uh, across the the maturity of the account. Uh, you know it can start as a self serve. You know it drives adoption, and once there's adoption, you know there's a hand raiser that happens, and then. There's a sales rep that gets uh, engaged and you go through the qualification process and then you have an opportunity to expand the account. So we've, uh, we've over the years sort of architected and like, uh, you know, built the entire funnel and, and what the process is. And, uh, and that's also sort of a key part of uh, how uh, all of this uh, operates. But like I said, like, I think like there are a few uh, areas where we could, uh, we could further streamline how, how we operate and think of it as sort of one single unit. I imagine that is true for every company out there. Yes. <laughs> One maybe final question before we get to our very exciting lightning round. What are some features that people could look forward to that uh, are coming with Miro? We recently, about a month ago, uh, announced uh, you know Miro AI um, on the backdrop of uh, uh, all the amazing work that's happening around generative AI and large language models and stuff. So I think uh, you know it was really really exciting to see all of the the community enthusiasm around sort of the use cases that we launched. So we're going to be uh, taking it across uh, the finish line and doing a uh, general availability in the in the coming weeks and months so i think like that's one big thing and we'll be adding more capabilities there just today we actually uh, announced a, a bunch of really deep uh, enhancements and updates around how miro can be used for team rituals and agile practices so you now uh, you know you can actually do retrospectives in miro where you can have a private mode where while lenny is typing his feedback during a retrospective nobody else can see it and then one click, you can uh, reveal it. Uh, and I, I just saw some of the results of the feedback, and it was like rated as the number one feature people saw. 
there's also uh, some deeper integrations in terms of bringing an entire program board from from Jira uh, to start to do uh, dependency mapping inside of Miro uh, in a in a in a fun and collaborative way to to use this dependency mapping along with program board to start to do PI planning program uh, program increment planning which is essentially scrum of scrums or big big room planning that's happening. So there's some really uh, amazing capabilities that we've added there, which is on the backdrop of some of the updates we've made in terms of, uh, you know, estimation of sprint story points and so on and so forth. So now there's a whole uh, uh, plethora of capabilities uh, uh, and apps that are available as part of the platform that allow you uh, to uh, to have your entire team, uh, you know, conduct your uh, your team rituals in in Miro, and you can automate certain things. You can streamline things. You can do certain things in async, and then uh, do the rest in synchronous uh, ways. So I think like that's been uh, a big update uh, as well. Amazing! With that, we've reached our very exciting lightning round. I've got six questions for you. Are you ready? Yes. All right, let's do it. What are two or three books that you have recommended most to other people? One is uh, I love this. Uh, uh, when breath becomes air. By Paul Kalaniti, uh, you know, it's like one of those really emotional books uh, that yeah. at the end of it, you might have tears in your eyes. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but really, uh, really amazing. We talked about Frank Sultman's Amp It Up and then Satya Nadella's uh, Hit Refresh. And I think like philosophically, like some of the things that we we talked about today, you know, are inspirations that I, I found in, in some of these books. What's a recent favorite movie or TV show? Ted Lasso. I don't know if it's a recent one or not, but like something. Uh, it's a new season. <laughs> yeah. I've enjoyed a lot. Uh, I think it's like a very positive and uplifting message. You know, I think the performance is huge. It's it's humorous. Uh, you know, the characters are well developed, and you know, so I think like overall, uh, it's a treat uh, at least for me to watch. <laughs> What's a favorite interview question you like to ask? I actually uh, ask a, a math problem. So for those of you who uh, interviewed with me. I have this math problem, which is based on uh, how uh, Adobe uh, created its first Creative Suite bundle. And uh, I was actually part of the team that came up with the pricing and packaging for the first Creative Suite uh, post-acquisition of Macromedia. And it's it's a math problem that uh, allows you very quickly to sort of uh, figure out uh, uh, people in terms of their problem-solving uh, skills. And uh, and usually, like I, I I give that problem to people. I've given it to like I don't know seven eight hundred people. So I now have like a very very well established standard distribution of how long it takes for people, where do they get stuck, and uh, and where they've gotten stuck. For those people I've hired, like what evidence do I have in terms of like using that as a framework in terms of them being able to solve things? So uh, that's uh, that's my favorite question. And so you're saying you've uh, mapped back people that have done a certain way on the problem with their success, and you've kind of found that it's a good signal of their performance. Yes, uh, not 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 directly, but like, yes, co- co- correlation and stuff. <laughs> That's amazing. That's like one of the biggest problems with interviewing. You think you're asking all these amazing questions, and it's such a good signal. You have no idea. You, no one goes back and is like, oh, this person sucked. This person didn't. So that's really cool. They have that much data on that one question. Yep. Two more questions for you. <laughs> What's something relatively minor that you've changed in how you do product development? that has had a tremendous impact on your team's ability to execute. We talked about some of that, like sort of removing the roadblocks. I think like having this motto of like, you know, create customer value faster with high quality, just the simplicity of that. And, you know, it's actually part of our evaluation rubric. It's it's part of how we measure ourselves and stuff. So I think like just coming up with these simple concepts that you can rally the organization around. And I think it's still work in progress, but something that I believe is is leading to positive outcomes. Final question. What's your favorite Miro template? 
it's the FIFA World Cup, actually. I was so like fascinated with what was done. Uh, yeah, it's it's the latest one. But I think like there's a bunch of them in terms of retros as well. And, and I think like your template as well. <laughs> amazing. We will link to all of those. Varun, this was amazing. Uh, everything I expected and more. Your team is ex in as interesting and unique as I thought. And I am excited for people to learn from you. And we're going to share a lot of links alongside this episode in the show notes. Two final questions. Where can folks find you online if they want to reach out and learn more? And how can listeners be useful to you? Thank you, Lenny. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed uh, our interaction. Uh, and, uh, you know, you folks can find me online on, on, on LinkedIn. I think that's probably the best way to, uh, to connect uh, with me. And I think like in terms of, uh, you know, one or two things I can ask everyone is that uh, one is uh, if you are an existing Miro user and you use uh, the product for something interesting, I highly encourage you to contribute it as a template as part of Miroverse. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, folks who use that uh, and, uh, and we would love for you to contribute there. And the, the second thing is, you know, I know a lot of product development teams, PMs and designers, you know, are big fans of you, Lenny. So uh, uh, those are also the users that use uh, Miro. So if there's anything we could do to make the product better, if there's things that you feel like we can expand the platform into, we would love to uh, hear from you and, you know, just reach out to me directly over LinkedIn, uh, direct message or connect with me there. Uh, and uh, yeah, and let us know. You're here to Amazing. Varun, thank you again for being here. Thanks, Lenny. Awesome. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this valuable, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Also, please consider giving us a rating or leaving a review as that really helps other listeners find the podcast. You can find all past episodes or learn more about the show at Lenny'sPodcast.com. See you in the next episode.